Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bavonis, and joining me today is Claire Lehman, founder and editor-in-chief of Quillette since 2015, the platform for free thought. Claire Lehman, how are you? I'm very well, Salvatore. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, look, you claim that the pandemic has accelerated trends. I think the pandemic has accelerated trends, particularly the move from uh, sort of ground, real-world, bricks-and-mortar reality to the cloud reality, so the internet reality. And I mean, we're seeing it right now as you and I are speaking to each other. I'm not at the Centre for Independent Studies, standing on a podium talking to people who are in a real building. We're doing it online. And I think this has all sorts of implications for our culture and for business and for ultimately politics as well. And some of them not very good. Some of them maybe okay. <laughs> I know what people are going to want to hear about are those implications. Let me just say a quick hello to Mike, who says uh, Quillette is a great publication. I read it regularly. So you do have a lot of fans out there listening today. Uh, what are some of those trends that you see on the horizon or maybe already happening? Well, in the business world, um, I'm seeing a big shift of wealth from bricks and mortar businesses to cloud businesses and digital businesses. So my business is doing fine. We're an online magazine. We don't have, I mean, I office space in the city, but I don't have big offices. Uh, but I don't have a shop front. I don't, haven't had to shut down because of coronavirus, and I don't. Uh, I haven't had to lay off any employees. Now, the sad reality is that so many small businesses uh, will cl have closed and will close and will close forever potentially, and this uh, this impact on small business will be felt for at least two generations. Um, meanwhile, the share price of Amazon, Apple, and Google has increased dramatically. So anyone who has a digital business, and particularly the corporations, which are mammoth, huge corporations, digital corporations like Amazon, Google, and Apple, uh, they're making money. Well, all of these family-owned small businesses are shutting up shop, probably never to reopen, and that's terribly sad. And, and who knows what kind of implications that will have politically, but uh, certainly in terms of wealth inequality, I think those trends will be accelerated. Right. I mean, you said, you used the word, the phrase terribly sad. I mean, it's sad, but is it terrible? I mean, isn't this a direction maybe we want to go? Moving, moving uh, online, moving to online and digital business. Well, I think, I think, uh, you know, if you if you think about a city, the social fabric of a city um, is made up of cafes and restaurants and people being able to go about their lives and intermingle and, you know, entrepreneurship, small and small business ownership is a way for. The middle class to have a real stake in society and if the only people who are running businesses or people who are most successful in running businesses are oligarchs people who are already multi-millionaires or billionaires and the middle class is sort of shut out 
from small business ownership and entrepreneurship. I mean, that has terrible implications for, um, you know, private uh, ownership, investment in society, the ability of people to um, grow their wealth and social mobility over time. I mean, but you know, you yourself obviously run an online business. Yes. And although you may not be an oligarch yet, <laughs> we all, we have a lot of your fans watching today and a lot of them really hope you're going to become a media oligarch. And yet yeah. on the other side, there are lots of people who currently work for large organizations uh, in journalism who are losing their jobs. Uh, yet here we have the family business or at least the, yeah. you know, the, the personal business. Yeah taking on the oligarchs. Now, a lot of us are big fans of what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just going to push you a little more on that. Is that a problem yeah. or is this is this the, the, the good side of creative destruction? Oh, it's not a problem for me. <laughs> but uh, I do have friends who are restaurant owners and who work in hospitality, and I feel for the restaurant industry. Uh, and then I suppose I'm thinking about the retail industry uh, where, you know, people maybe some, you know, shop owners and, and so forth. But in terms of media, I mean, the legacy publications, as you mentioned, they've sort of been in decline for some time now since the internet has arrived on the scene. And I imagine that the pandemic has greatly accelerated that trend. And I'm not terribly sad about that. And neither am I um, uh, terribly sad about uh, the impact potentially on education because I think the university industry and the education industry, not just in Australia but elsewhere, has been uh, self-dealing for some time now and hasn't necessarily been delivering on its core mission, that is to provide people with education. Uh, so certainly some industries where there's been a bubble forming around them are going to have a bit of a shake-up and that might not necessarily be a bad thing. So you're right, there's, there's on the one hand, there's going to be challenges for middle-class entrepreneurs. On the other hand, some dinosaur industries that really need to be shaken up will be shaken up and that will be good for all of us. I mean, speaking of education, let me say a quick hello to the three R's of Rosalind, Richard and Roy. Thanks for watching today. Um, but you brought up education. Let's get into that a little bit. There's been a, you know, a rapid shift to online learning. A lot of people think that's long overdue. Other people think that's a, you know, a, a tragic loss of human contact. Where do you sit on that, that view of online education? Well, I think online education is fine, and it is. It should be part of what the university delivers. I suppose that I think students and their families should be wary of how much they're paying universities. And I'm not just thinking about the Australian context. In the United States, um, tuition costs have increased over the last few decades and the quality of output and the quality of the product they deliver ha hasn't. So I think it's uh, going to be good for the United States for parents and students to finally consider what am I paying tens of thousands of dollars for if I'm just sitting at home watching an online online lecture. In Australia, I think uh, the over-reliance of universities on the international student market 
uh, has um, introduced all sorts of perverse incentives into the system. And so having that market shut out for some time will force universities to really consider what their mission is and whether they're profit-making corporations or whether they're a public good delivering education to young Australians. So uh, I think I think in different contexts the lockdowns and the disruption to the to the the, the general uh, program will will force universities to, to really take a hard look at themselves. Oh, I, I'm imagining that in just a few minutes of asking you questions, I've completely shifted your view of online the shift online. But I think it's probably not that. It's probably that what you're saying is much more nuanced than a simple lamenting of uh, you know the passing of a legacy world and the move online. I, I, if you're going to think of this broadly, I mean, you've mentioned some things that are really unfortunate. You've mentioned some things that look very promising. What's your overall take on this on this trend to the, the digital world? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I am optimistic, but I'm also pessimistic. I mean, I know, <laughs> I know that's uh, not a not a simple answer, but yeah, I, I'm. I'm generally optimistic. I mean, I'm going to do fine. I have a digital digital business, but I do worry about uh, some of the cultural trends that seem to have grown out of the internet. I mean, we're all aware of such things as cancel culture, and um, one thing you know that was really quite uh, disturbing to me was the recent. Black Lives Matter protests in the United States after the um, the terrible killing of George Floyd. How quickly that spread to to countries all over the world. So they had this big outpouring of they had protests and even rioting, and then all over Europe there there are mass protests in the middle of a pandemic. And even here in Australia, we had protests in Sydney and Melbourne. I mean that's unimaginable without social media and without the internet and so you know we can't it's hard to predict what kind of social upheaval will be brought about because of social media and the internet but I, I at the same time I'm very hesitant to say that all of our problems are because of social media because I think at the same time social media brings very creative and brilliant individuals together um, from all over the world, and so we have we have the potential for great advancement and flourishing. But at the same time, some of these um, sort of toxic, negative ideas are more easily spread. So, like I said before, I'm optimistic and I'm also pessimistic. I mean, a lot of people, and I don't include myself in this number. A lot of people would say that Quillette is part of the spread of toxic ideas online, and I've heard lots of condemnation of, uh, you know, of, of you and, and your magazine precisely for being a platform for free thought. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your overall view of how is the move online going to affect culture and politics? Is it a, you know, is it an even split that, you know, some good, some bad, same as before, or some conservative, some progressive, same as before, or, or is there some sy systematic influence in one direction that you see? I don't see a systematic influence in one direction. What I see is a balkanization of the culture. So 
we're splitting up into smaller and smaller groups and smaller and smaller niches. And so the niche that Quillette operates in and potentially the niche that the Centre for Independent Studies operates in is it's a fairly deep niche where we go into content and ideas in a fairly deep manner. Whereas if you think of um, me mainstream media, particularly prior to the disruption of the internet, it's much broader in its focus. So you've got, uh, you can go to a newspaper or a magazine or turn on TV and you can see sort of shallow coverage of many, many different topics. Whereas a, a publication like Quillette, we're not covering many different topics. We don't have that breadth, but we're going into topics that we do go into in a very, in, with depth, so we're going into a deep, um, what, so I, I see this balkanization happening where we are all finding like-minded people, people who we share values with, people who we share interests with, and we're um, creating communities and groups according to our shared values and interests, and that's really positive on the one hand, but if your interest is in creating a violent insurrection in your home country or if your interest is in terrorism, um, that's not such a good thing for society. So, you know, we, we're going to have situations where people coming together who have shared interests will, will be a great net benefit to society if people have healthy, um, productive, beneficial interests such as science and technology. But if people are sharing interests according to some kind of violent ideology, I mean, that's a terrible thing. But I don't, there's no way we can control that. This is just a natural outgrowth of the interconnectivity that the internet gives us. I, I, I'm really interested to hear this narrative as you framed it because when I was studying, I mean, you know, I'm a sociologist. When I was studying sociology in the 1990s, the, the dominant message in our classes was that. Modernity had torn apart all people's ideas of communities. There was no more social capital. People didn't connect anymore. And, well, <laughs> you know, it sounds like people have found new ways of connecting. Shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't we be thrilled that people have found all these new ways of connecting? And of course, the downside of that is, of course, people who want to destroy also can connect. But, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to throw too much German out here, but you know about this whole Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft debate. Is this a good or a bad thing? Uh, it's mixed. <laughs> I'm going to pin you down yet, Claire Lehman. And hopefully the good will outweigh the bad, but we just, it's hard to predict. It's, it's quite hard to predict what's going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we are going to move to viewer questions in just a minute. I really, though, would like to get a, okay, I can't ask for a definitive answer on a half-hour chat show, but I would like to get, I'm sure our viewers want to know, what is your own takeaway, what the move online ultimately means for individual liberty? Um, well, to be honest, I am pessimistic. I would, I would have to say I'm probably 51% pessimistic. Uh, if I had to make a choice about whether my optimism or pessimism wins out, I would say my pessimism. I, I see um, the cultural balkanization as being a threat to cohesive governance. And so governments are 
likely going to try and crack down eventually on some of our internet communities and we all know where that, you know, how that can be done in a blunt manner. You know, Colette might get caught up in the censorship, you know, if, if lots of, um, there's a big crackdown on anything that's right of centre, you know, Colette might get swept up in that. And, and, and so we all know about how, uh, how censorship is never done in a precise manner and it has all of these bad outcomes. And then, and, and then with, further with the cultural balkanisation, I feel as if political polarisation is just speeding up, particularly in the United States where people really can't, um, the centre is not, it doesn't look like it's holding. And I'm pessimistic about the state of that country, the state of democracy in that country. Um, less pessimistic about Australia. I think we've got a much healthier demo democracy at the moment. Um, but you never know. I mean, these... It, these trends seem to be contagious, just as when the Black Lives Matter protests became sort of contagious and started happening all over the world. We don't know if similar sort of mass protest movements might also start in the United States and then be exported all around the world. So I'm, I am concerned and I, uh, I am worried that we don't, we haven't yet built the sort of norms and the robust sort of immune system to counter some of these more toxic ideas that seem to be very contagious. Well, I have to say, never underestimate the United States of America. Uh, now is the moment that I'm sure everyone has been waiting for. It's the moment I ask you to please press the like button on this video. We really appreciate your support. Uh, click the support link. We have a link up there in the comments for supporting the CIS. If uh, you haven't joined the CIS already, it's only $40 to join, and we'd really love to have you as a member. Of course, that will get you notifications of this show, among other things. It also helps keep us on the air. The CIS accepts no government funding, and that includes no job keeper. So your support really is everything to the organization. If you join at the $250 level, or if you upgrade today to the $250 level, I can send you on Liberty, uh, published by the Center for Independent Studies under Greg Lindsay as the editor-in-chief. And Liberty, I'm sorry, Liberty and Liberalism. And Liberty and Liberalism was the first book on classic liberalism published in Australia more than 100 years ago, written by the Australian Bruce Smith. I will personally sign your copy if you mention that you joined because of On Liberty. So please do join us. Uh, like the video, share it with friends, subscribe to the channel, and of course, read Quillette. Uh, we all do. And uh, Claire, if you want to put in a quick pitch for Quillette, now's your chance. Yeah, if, you, if you're not aware of us, go to Quillette.com. That's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-E.com. And you can also support us on Patreon. It's uh, Patreon at Colette, and we have a podcast, and we have an event series coming up, so watch out for that. If you're not a subscriber, you can subscribe to our newsletter. There's a subscribe button at the top of our website, so um, stay tuned. And before you ask again how to spell Colette, I promise you, no matter how you misspell it, Google will still find it. Yes. <laughs> so that, that's one, one for the oligarchy. They do process misspellings very well. And Colette is, has become such a prominent website there that really, no matter how anyone mangles a name, everyone knows you're there. So thanks for that, that service to the community that you are providing. Uh, we had a question from a 
bit of left field, or maybe I should say from the left bank, <laughs> from Richard, which is, Claire, what is your favorite school of philosophy? Oh, well, I, so I trained as a psychologist, so I have a scientific training, and so I would describe myself as being an empiricist, uh, not quite as far gone as the positivists like Richard Dawkins, but for me, empiricism is, that's where it's at. We, we know what we know through um, observation of reality and experimentation. Sounds kind of like you're a, a, a William Jamesian pragmatist like me. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Mike, uh, by the way, is a comment, not a question. He doesn't agree with everything in Quillette, but it does present a balanced view, not radical in any way. He thinks, however, my sociology classes need work. So, well, <laughs> at least... At least one of us is getting some love here. Uh, look, Roy wants to know, do the attacks on free speech worry you? Yes, absolutely, definitely. And how normalized these attacks are becoming within bureaucratic speak, within corporations, how, norm how they're just becoming normalized in the language. Uh, it's very concerning to me. Now, are, are, I don't know if you're following the Scottish uh, hate speech legislation. Are, are you up on that? No, I All right. So we did have a question about Scotland and its very extreme version of Australia's 18C. Do you, do you have any thoughts on 18C? Uh, well, I'm not, the, I'm not a big fan of 18C. Uh, I am, and there are instances where very innocent people have been caught up in the system and uh, resources have been wasted. Uh, I think I think we would be better off without it, to be quite frank. Um, but I, yeah, that's my general view. And to clarify for me, that's Australia's own uh, racial vilification law and hate speech law. Yeah. Uh, Harmony wants to know, will the trend, and this is a bit complicated, so listen carefully, will the trend of destroying the economy to save the economy in order to save us Continue. Well, it looks like it is, and you know, I, I feel for our leaders. They have no idea what they're doing. And that you can see that they're they're waiting and hoping for a vaccine, but a vaccine might be a long way off. And so, all of this economic damage, you know, they could turn around next year and just say, "Look, we've got to open up, and there is no vaccine." And all of these businesses have been decimated for no reason. We could have just followed the Swedish model. Um, but, you know, it's just one of these situations where nobody know, no, nobody knew at the start what to do. Nobody knows when a vaccine is going to be available. So I can understand many of the decisions that have been made. Uh, but I think we might look back uh, in a few months or next year and, and, and look at Sweden and think that was the right way to go. And I was one of the people who, early on, I, I called for lockdowns and I looked at Sweden and I thought, how, how can they be so callous towards their population? But, you know, in a, with the absence of a vaccine, there is no other choice. There is no other option. Right. Now, you've just admitting to having changed your mind on something. What's your own view on, on flip-flopping and should we be committed and, and stick to an opinion, or is it okay for public figures to change their minds? Well, 
I mean, the I guess the downside is that people will accuse you of hypocrisy or of um, you know uh, not having principles if you change your mind. But it's also a sign that you're open to evidence and data. And I try to be open to evidence and data. And if if data is coming in that contradicts a position that I hold, then I want to be open to it. I want to be able to update my beliefs. Um, so I think we should try and encourage people to change their mind whenever and wherever they can. Yeah. Um, Christopher wants to know, do you see quasi-monopolies like Google and Facebook as potential threats to free speech? Um, I mean, I'm not as anti-tech as uh, some, like I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, you know, in, on the, in the camp that uh, advocates to break up Google and and um, break up Facebook, you know, break up Facebook because I don't, um, I actually don't see their influences that pernicious. Um, but the the tensions between government and the big tech companies in the United States are simmering and they are going to come to a head. So I think there will be a lot of sort of like innocent bystanders caught up in that battle who will be censored or, or have their, you know, their free speech curtailed without any fault of their own. So, yeah. I mean, I'll follow up on that. Does, does Patreon have too much power? Because I know some people have been banned from Patreon uh, yeah. for, you know, I think quite main, having quite mainstream points of view, but they yeah. aren't approved. Patreon. You yourself depend at least in part on Patreon as a payments mechanism for support. What are your own concerns about Patreon? I don't have very. I don't have concerns about Patreon at the moment because we did diversify our revenue stream. But it was um, a year and a half ago when Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson left Patreon after they sort of arbitrarily banned a couple of people and. My income re was reduced by 30% sort of overnight, and that was very difficult. We had to adapt to that. And so I am aware that we can't fully rely on any of these payments companies. One has to build, like I have my own, uh, we, you can donate to Quillette straight through the Quillette website. Uh, and it's tricky. I mean, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. You can't put all of your eggs into one basket. Um, even and, and then Patreon itself uh, gets put under pressure from Visa and MasterCard if they don't like something that Patreon is providing a platform for, they can um, remove their services from Patreon. So there's m multiple layers of interference that can occur. How did uh, so? I, I just want to follow up on that. I don't want to, this. The purpose of the show is not to break news, but. Yeah. You said your own revenues were hit by 30%. Why would that have affected your revenue for that? Well, um, many of my subscribers or patrons also subscribed to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, and those um, subscribers quit the platform in protest. And so 30% of our subscribers had quit the platform out of protest, not out of... Um, because we had done anything wrong, but we were just collateral damage, basically. Speaking of Jordan Peterson, I'm not sure what to make of this question, but Roy does want to ask, do you have any news from Jordan Peterson? I don't. 
I don't. I wish I did. I hope he's doing well. <laughs> uh, look, uh, the troll, and I'm sorry, uh, that's his name. Uh, he's not trolling you or she is not trolling you. Do you think the free that free speech is being used as a tool to manipulate narratives by claiming that free speech needs to be restricted? Or you know, to what extent is free speech becoming a tool for other things? Uh, I don't really see that it is. I think free speech is a foundational value and principle, and it's not just a. It's not just about having laws that prevent government uh, from interfering with your speech. Free speech is a cultural value and virtue, and I think uh, if anything, our our culture at the moment is incredibly anti-free speech, and people are getting into all sorts of trouble having fairly adenine opinions and in academia you can get into trouble for just stating the truth. Um, so I think I, I think if anything free speech isn't being used enough as a um, in terms of a narrative. You know, we should be we should be spreading the narrative that the way a society flourishes and progresses is through the exercise of free speech because that's how we update our beliefs, that's how we find out if we're wrong about something is from other people's free speech uh, and that's how we share information. Right. Now, I know you're not an epidemiologist, so I'm not going to ask you to play one on TV, but yeah. we do have a question from Tony that uh, there's currently no end game outside of herd immunity. Uh, for you know, for coronavirus or mass vaccination, which doesn't exist yet, is an indefinite is an indefinite Australian bubble sustainable? Uh, should we be staying in our almost coronavirus-free bubble? Well, we really need to put a time frame on it. I mean, I think it might be sustainable for this year to the end of the year, but no way will it be sustainable for next year. I mean. Can you imagine having another year where we're not allowed to travel overseas internationally? No, I don't think so. And uh, so the government, I mean, if a vaccine is not on the horizon, it will have to update its position and we will have to uh, facilitate travel with red, you know, what you would call red zones, places that have a lot of virus floating around. Right. We have a fascinating question from... David, who asks us, does the pandemic tell us anything about society's ability to handle death? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Very interesting. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I did publish an interesting article from a written by a Portuguese ex-Portuguese politician called Bruno Massis, and he argued that the way that Asian countries dealt with the virus early on in a very serious, aggressive manner, reflected their moral knowledge of poverty, disease. So his argument was that nations and cultures that have been, who are closer, who are only one generation away from escaping poverty, were more serious in their response to the virus and they, you know, wore masks and they um, immediately changed their behaviours, whereas richer countries in Europe and the United States were more blasé about it because they have 
less contact with death, disease, and poverty. And I thought that was an interesting argument. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that is an interesting question. I hadn't pondered it before, so I'll go away and have a think about that. I'll have a think and write an article about it. We'd all love to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Roy uh, wants to know, and this is a very, a very political question. He wants to know, why don't right-wing politicians in government take action against radical left-wing politi politics who are clearly damaging society? Now, you can make of that what you will. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think when we're talking about radicals, um, the way that radical fringes on either the right-wing or the left-wing are most effectively dealt with are from the members of their own parties or the, the members of their own political faction. So if you've got left-wing radicals, the best, the, the people best in the best position to deal with them or to neutralise them are the centre-leftists, members of uh, their own faction, so like expelling them from a party or delegitimising them in some way. Same with the right-wing. And I think, I think right-wing factions and parties and, and politicians actually do a fairly good job of that. And yeah. that's why all over the world we have fairly moderate right-wing parties in most places, many places. I mean, there are exceptions, of course. But um, at the moment, yeah, I, I think the centre-left is not doing the best job at neutralising some of the more radical hard-left elements in society, and that's a concern. But it's not, it's not really the, the, the job of, of right-wing parties to do anything about it. They can't. We have a question from Tony. Um, do you think the media, including the alternative media, uh, is maybe too pessimistic? And kind of along those lines, I'm not sure if you consider Quillette alternative anymore, uh, but is Quillette balanced for articles that are optimistic and pessimistic? Or do you think Quillette is itself too pessimistic? That's a really good question. And uh, that reminds me of something that Stephen Pinker talks about quite often, and that is uh, media... Uh, gets hung up on outliers, so instead of statistical trends. So if you look at statistical trends, many aspects of society have been gradually getting better for generations. Violence has declined. Um, uh, you know, you look at all different types of crime uh, that have gone down since the 1960s and prior to the 1960s. There's very, you can see general downward trends. Prosperity has increased. Um, and so when media focuses on one death or one murder or, you know, one rape, it sort of, we can get this uh, perception that our communities are, you know, crime-ridden when they're really not. They're, this, they're safer than they ever have been before. So there is, I think that, I think media does have a responsibility to contextualise individual acts of crime in broader trends, and they they could do a much better job of that. I think we do it at Colette. However, we might present an overly pessimistic view of um, the state of groupthink in academia, for sure, because like we, we publish so many academics who have been sort of uh, caught up in some kind of internal battle in their university, and so one would come away from reading Colette thinking that, you know, the universities are terrible places to work, and it's probably not the case for most academics. Um, 
Well, at so least we we have a responsibility in, in that little on that little issue. But in terms of crime, I mean, that's not really our wheelhouse. But yeah. Yeah, for now, universities at least are places to work. We'll see how long that holds up. Uh, look, we have a question from our executive producer, which means I do have to ask it. Uh, Max wants to know, what do you think of Google's recent opposition to Australia's proposed new media laws? I might generalize that to say, what do you think of Australia's proposed new media laws? Uh, I'm not... I have to have a closer look at the proposed media laws, but I, I think they're going to be ineffective. I don't see how they will be able to be enforced uh, because the internet does not have borders. Uh, and I don't, I really, I honestly do not see how any regulator will be able to enforce. And similarly with Facebook, um, Oh, with the ACCC or something, there's been some Australian government um, body who has said to Facebook they have to start paying money to media companies for sharing, having their content shared. I don't see how they can enforce that. I don't, it seems to me unenforceable laws and uh, there are just so many ways for these tech companies to skirt them. I think ultimately it will just be a failure. Now, we're about to wrap up. Uh, I do want to ask you a few rapid-fire questions just to let everyone get their word in. Uh, first, is the government and media direction of creating fear and anxiety going to create some kind of mass PTSD when this is all over? I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, but I, I think it's not, it's not entirely the fault of the media. I think we are living through challenging times and... Uh, if you tune, if you glue to the, your TV set eight for eight hours a day, of course you're going to feel depressed. You know, feel depressed and anxious. Uh, so we all have to take care of ourselves and go outside for long walks in the sun. Um, I don't think you know we can hold media responsible for our own consumption habits, though. Right. Following up, the view that philosophy is itself a lifelong preparation for death is that. A Socratic view? Is that an interesting view to you? What do you think of that idea? Uh, that philosophy is a, is a lifelong preparation for death. Um, well, I mean, I don't really have a view on that statement, but uh, I think that psychologists know that if we think about our death and our own mortality, that can paradoxically make us appreciate the present moment. So potentially, you know, we should think about our death a little bit more uh, frequently than what we do at the moment, which is for me never. <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer not to think about it. Uh, look, will the trend of people believing it is acceptable to judge people based on their skin color as a way of combating racism, so using race to combat yeah. racism, is that trend going to continue? Uh, unfortunately, I think it will, and we have to do everything we can to resist that in Australia. Uh, yeah, I think it will it will continue, and it's a product of elite universities in the United States, and we have to do our very best to debunk that and resist it here in Australia and not import it from America. All right, we have a slew of thank yous coming in, people saying, thanks, Claire, we really appreciate it. We love 
uh, Quillette. So just I want to let you know, you have a lot of fans listening today. I do have one final question. We'll end with this question, which is, uh, which I just lost. Uh, one final question, which is about, and I am, I'm hemming and hawing here because I lost the question. Can you comment on, this is from Caleb, can you comment on going on with uh, coronavirus in Victoria and New Zealand? It seems like, you know, these, these brand new outbreaks, does this change the way we should be thinking about it? The places where we thought we had this epidemic under control, it's now come back. Uh, I hesitate to, to provide a, a concise answer on that. I think it's difficult to say, but certainly the resurgence of cases just does show that no matter how hard we try and lock down and eradicate this virus, it's going to come back. So I think it does change the, calcul- the, the risk calculation that we have to make or that leaders have to make. Uh, just because you've eradicated it once doesn't mean you will eradicate it forever. Now I'm going to challenge you. With, I told you this last question. I'm going to challenge you with one final philosophy question I've received. Okay. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Henry David Thoreau, Walden, and civil disobedience? I'm going to have to... Uh, ignorance. I, I, I'm not I mean, I, I, I haven't read it, I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, well, it's good to admit things. I'm going to admit to everyone, I haven't read it. Okay. And, <laughs> I, and I, I am myself a, maybe an American libertarian, and I myself have not read. But I will point out that Thoreau did, while he was being civilly disobedient there on Walden Pond, go home to his mother's for uh, Sunday dinner every week. So maybe he wasn't so uh, heroically isolated as you might think. <laughs> Uh, Look, Claire Lehman, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Salvatore, and thanks to the CIS for putting this series on. Oh, no, no, definitely we are in your debt, not the other way around. Uh, Certainly, thanks to everyone out there for your extraordinary engagement today. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of the questions. I'd also like to thank our producer, Emily Holmes, executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. Next week, our own Peter Curti will be on. Look for it. We'll see you then. All right. Thanks, guys.